please, man. What are you doing? We're trying to get home. We're already late. We're late for dinner. It's way past 6.30. Why is this happening? We live inside a dream. Let's roll. back uh i'm murphy tom are you out there still uh yeah no one will know the hell that we just went through to get to this point of hours actually recording technical difficulties <laughs> ladies and gentlemen we just got them though tom did power through here we are so uh how you doing all right great i had some chinese food tonight yeah you're good well, not anymore but i had some chinese food and uh ready to talk twin peaks with you it's a great you're probably hungry again it's been two hours we've been working on this you're probably hungry for another meal it's been so long. i am i've got some steamed yeah. dumplings ready to go but uh yeah uh, we're, hungry. We're, we've got some twin peaks delights uh, to serve everybody today it's part 11 one of the best episodes we think right review it's that. a great episode yes especially coming off nine and ten which weren't as solid but 11 was where we're in the home stretch now i think the last six seven eight episodes really solid there's a little bit of a hiccup in 12 um but i haven't seen it in a while you're in a bad mindset i think when you first saw 12 you're in montreal upset i was in montreal yes but i am let's rock something crazy to happen i suppose that was the the french or the italian woman dancing around or doing uh, seducing or him seducing uh, cole seducing her was that the that was part 12 and then audrey audrey's first scene yeah Oh, that probably was it. Audrey coming in. That probably was yeah. a surprise. Yeah. All right. Well, are we... Uh, any preamble? Or are we going to start the sucker? Yeah, one thing I noticed. So I did a little bit of uh, research because it's been a while since I've seen any of these episodes. And I have not watched Twin Peaks with any regularity other than here and there I'll, I'll put in an episode. <laughs> it's been a while. I've been watching some Miss Marple movies uh, uh, with Margaret Rutherford. But per your... It's fantastic. Uh, yes. Fantastic. You recommended them. I went through them all in like a week. There's four of them. They're great. You watched Maniac? I show. did. I love Maniac. Yeah, it's great. Highly, highly recommended. But is it Lynch worthy? Is it a Lynch? No. See, we're trying to get you to watch something. So I think you know, if it was, I think it was continuing. I would really suggest that. But I think you might. You, you're not really keen on it. I've been describing it to you, and it seems like you're not into it. So I'm just not going to press you, buddy. It's not that I'm not into it. What I'm doing is I'm holding off of doing anything else with the hopes that we're going to get a season four announcement. <laughs> you're going to be like Father Time, old and gray, sitting around waiting for that to happen. It's not going to happen. You got to get going. It's the, what are the odds? We're you got to get inspired with something. So you got to be inspired. Give me a number percentage. Is it going to happen or not? Uh, I think there's a good, there's a 38% chance it's going to happen, but you and I might be like 50 years old by the time it happens. That's like yeah, social that's, security. It can be really <laughs> old. I think there'd be like a retirement section in the black lodge. Like there's a little area for the people <laughs> hung out. Like, like what our man probably would start doing. Well, yeah, he gets his the Brooks, there's, Brooks brother suits. I think, uh, from the rack in the black lodge. Like senior drool cut probably from, uh, he's probably there. Yeah, he's probably there. Yeah. So, okay, so one, something I wanted to talk about, and uh, watching part 11 before we started this, so actually a couple of hours before this, but uh, the credit sequence, which we all just kind of, you know, just see, you know, think of as a credit sequence. But if you look at it, I don't think this is intentional, but it really does tell the story of Laura Palmer, especially after season three, because the first image we have is of her face or the homecoming picture, like the golden orb in part eight, descending or being sent to earth and it's hovering over twin peaks like the haunting specter the image of laura palmer over twin peaks it's haunted or uh the memories of her have lingered for all these years and then we have the waterfall and that could be a kind of a message or a symbol of her descent her fall her death 
And then we have the image of the Black Lodge where she goes into the Black Lodge. And the last image we have of the Black Lodge is the floor going all crazy, like a loop-de-loop, like over and over. It's just endless. So really in the credit sequence, we have kind of a full narrative arc of Laura Palmer. Yeah, so at the very end of the series, they should have gone straight to just that loop-de-loop in the lodge doing circles. That's how it ended for all of us. We should have, they should have ended with that imagery. I, I, well, I think it at the ended, very, very end. Yeah, yeah, but it ended on a perfect note. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it was disorienting. You know, what I'm saying there was a, that was the interesting metaphor. That's kind of how we all felt. I think at the very end, spinning around the re- the black lodge red room, getting dizzy. You mean in part eighteen or with the credit yeah. sequences? Well, the very end when they blew the lights out and the whole thing, I was like, "What the fuck?" I was spinning around. Actually, I think I was spinning around. So. <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> well, let's get started. <laughs> All right, on that note, we're at the Rancho Rosa. Everyone, if you're going to follow along, let's uh, give it a shot. All right, here we are. The uh, entrance, the, the aforementioned Laura Orb is coming at us. Okay, so part 11 opens up with the scene of Frost's son, who's playing catch with, I think, two other boys. And we get Miriam. We get the scene of Miriam, who we last saw, um, I believe, in part 9. So it's taking your two episodes now to make it out of the woods. But um, the whole thing with the Miriam subplot, because she could have very easily, we could have just left that end. She was shot, presumably, because we heard we heard a gunshot. And then little Dickie Horn set uh, the stove, turned on the gas. So maybe it would have blown up, but it wasn't going to blow up because he left the day, or he punched through the door, right? So all that gas was going to escape. So It was a bad, bad killer. Criminal. That was probably why she survived, was because to indicate that he was a bad killer. He wasn't necessarily a stone-cold murderer. Like red, he screwed this or, up. Or like his father. Because if you look at Miriam, she has, I think she was shot in the face and uh, the left eye. It looks like it's all bloody. So that left eye shot is the MO of Mr. C. Who is? Played by Adele uh, Cooper, played by Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> He's the uh, he's the father. So of Phyllis, yeah, so, yeah. So he got some psychic powers like Vader, Luke from from his dad, and learned how to kill people through the eye. It's like yeah, Phyllis. it's the mo of his father. It's subliminal that uh, you know he would shoot her in the left eye. It's just another motif, the left eye motif. But uh, I was also thinking with Miriam is that this little plot because we'll see her one at a time in the hospital. Uh, in the hospital, in bed, the camera is like over her. You thought there was blue roses. Someone sent her blue roses, perhaps? I think they're purple. You're colorblind, my friend. Ah, But uh, um, Curses. But this whole thing is is really set up, or the end result of it is really all to get Truman and Ben Horn together. So Truman is telling him about his grandson who is responsible for Miriam and in this scene in that scene which I think is in I can't remember I think it's in 12 maybe maybe it's or the next one or 13 but it's to have Ben Horn give him the key give him the key that Jay so she's just a useless point to move the plot along you're saying yeah Yeah. the key but then if you think about it that key which was to Dale Cooper's room in the original series why would it open up that door in the uh, Great Northern Furnace Room I don't know, but I thought when Miriam went to the hospital and then went down the, the hallway, just like the original season, and she was in there, I thought something was going to fucked up happen to her in the hospital, and nothing happened. No, that we was saw it. her again. That was it. That's what I'm saying. We could have been like, like checking out, like see you later, have a good day. Like, we never saw that. Well, but I, I mean, you could say that for how many <laughs> plot threads in season three, right? Yeah, season four. You mean? Like save it for season four. Maybe the beginning of season four will open with her in the hospital. <laughs> I'm gonna finish up that plot point. All right, here's Norma. Norma's going. Okay, so Shelly's freaking out. This is the episode where everybody in Twin Peaks goes nuts. Like the lodge is, is affecting everybody, or is it the sparkle, or what is it? Well, the it's a di- it's certainly a different pace, right? I mean, it how is. Many... Everyone's freaking out. Yeah, yeah. It's from the really the get. Heard the foreboding cues, sound cues going on at the end. Like things, are, the evil's coming, and it seems like we thought that the evil was here. Well, episode. do you actually think that this was a car? This is a car that Shelly Johnson would actually drive. Shelly, I think it's a company car. I don't think it's really her car. Wait, the double R, like Meals yeah, on Wheels? R company, yeah, it's a double R Meals on Wheels company car. I think that she's, it's tax write-off for Norma, and that she, that's not really her car. She got her car. She probably got a DWI, and she got her license taken away. So she's using somebody else's don't car. Don't you think Bobby would have some sway and could— Yeah, but she had know, to lose her car, yeah. —have that removed? But this is absurd, I think. Her Stunt mom Shelley. is on the, on the hood of the, the car. car. This is awesome. This is one of the most fu- the funniest scenes ever, but also scary. But I, I laughed when I first saw it, and I'm laughing now. And that red shoe comes <laughs> off of Shelly, which yeah. was a, a little happy accident. I think when Lynch was shooting that. It was an improv shoe fall. Yeah. It was, <laughs> right. He loved it. He was like, great. Nice shoe. And there comes Carl. And this is going to be the famous whistle scene. That was just so funny when he pulled out that 
uh, alarm whistle to signal his chauffeur. Yeah, he's like Lando, and he's got a little cue, a little dog whistle. <laughs> Is everything Psycho. a Star Wars reference to you? That's I the guess so. Star Wars reference yeah, to that too. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and here we are on the Carl Rod mobile. I'd like to. Ha- I'd love to have this ride. It's a good ride. This is St. Carl Rod. Yeah. He really is. I mean... The control in, station? Yeah. I always and, thought like his driver was a little, a little suspicious. Or maybe he had special powers or something's going on. You never saw his face. Well, here she is saving the... Okay, so we all... Yeah, okay. So Carl's calling in to get Bobby to come in and uh, help her out. It's a good call. They're going to get it, get them together. Well, she didn't think to call Bobby. She called Norma first yeah, and Norma told said. her the situation. Norma says, why don't you call Bobby? And she's like, oh. And then I think even when... Even before that... Carl got on his little, you know, hot uh, CB to, to directly to the police department and got, you know, Bobby on the on the horn. So Shelley, is the relationship really that bad that she wouldn't, you know, reach out or? I don't know. It's or, a good. Yeah, it's a good question going because yeah, what's going on? the whole thing with her daughter Becky freaking out about her abusive husband, presumably with another woman. That's why she's acting that way. And her mom is on the hood of the car. She throws her off and then she continues going. And then when we see the whole parent scene, parent-daughter scene of the double R later, um, Shelly and Bobby are both very concerned. They want to help her out, but they still want her to be responsible for her actions. But then as soon as Shelly sees, sees Red, she's like, ooh, turns into a little schoolgirl. She gets up and leaves them and goes outside, sneaks a little kiss, and then comes back in. It's absurd. Yeah, it seems like they probably a lot of uh, story lot of the cutting room floor about the three of them that we didn't get to see. We're just I don't think episode, so. I, I don't think so. I think that a lot of the characters of Twin Peaks um, had minimal um, scenes. They didn't have arcs. Um, really, the the Big Ed and Norma, the finality or the, the twenty five years of frustration coming to a head, and Nadine giving Big Ed his freedom. That was you know that was something that really was not unexpected, but kind of the fewer happy endings, but had like kind of a, a resolution to it. Everything else was kind of left dangling. Most of our characters, we don't know what's going on with Ben or Jerry, um, Shelly or Bobby. Um, uh, Jacoby's just off in the woods doing his own thing or whatever. But a lot of the characters just, they're just not integral to the part, uh, to the, to the plot. They just, we saw them. We saw how they, where they are 25 years later, but it seems a little extreme that Becky would, you know, go crazy like this. It seems like it was in her, in her constitution. It seems out of character. Why? It does. When we only see her one... Lodge? I don't... Well, we know that uh, something is afoot. Jerry's in the woods. When Stephen and Gersten in the woods, you know, something is going on. Twin Peaks feels more like Deer Meadow um, in this whole season. Something is afoot. Um, We suspect that the, the Lodge... But the Lodge itself isn't really that kind of evil in season three. It's just the, the evolution of the tree and the one-armed man. It's more the convenience store, which I think might be pulling the strings, especially if the convenience store is you know, somehow linked to the Palmer house, which is in Twin Peaks. There could be something that that, that evil's emanating from Sarah, what's within her coming out through the Palmer house and cascading all over the town. Maybe that's what's going on. Well, yeah, speaking of that, we're in Buckhorn now, and we're going to go track down the zone. It's a big pivotal scene, and it seems like probably the convenience store is on the other end of the zone portal, right, in some way, since we saw some of the woodsmen. The way that Lynch frames this is you see the two electrical poles, and then the two cars park between the two electrical poles, and then when Cole and Albert go through the fence, you hear the static, the electricity, So, and then we see the sooties, the woodsmen. So you're you're right. I I don't think the convenience store is there, but the woodsmen— and this portal, which leads to what we think is a part of the convenience store, is the zone. But that's also very curious because why would Major Briggs be hibernating in the convenience store? Yeah, he has to have some sort of association with the cities. Like I don't, we never saw that. But I think we talked at one. Maybe he went undercover. <laughs> Possibly as a city. That'd be great. Dressed as a woodsman. What if? In. What if that that portal was a sanctuary and? when the sooties, the woodsmen, came along with maybe Mr. C and infiltrated and all hell broke loose, that that portal became compromised and became part of the convenience store. And maybe that's kind of what this chess game behind the scenes going on between the giant and uh, the fireman and Judy is going on, is the, are these portals, these other worlds being you know, taken over, whether by the, the White Lodge or the Black Lodge, or the, the light or the dark. Maybe that's why. Yeah, I'd like to have seen more stories like all the individual portals that got sullied and sootied, like what they were like. They could be their own little dominions with their own little worlds, you know what I'm saying? Like, that would be kind of cool. Yeah. We never get to see Major Briggs' world. We never got to see that zone scene 
I'd like to see a couple of those maybe in the future. Well, I think if Don Davis was alive, we would have gotten more scenes. We very well may have got, may have gotten that scene in the zone with Ruth and, and Bill Hastings. But uh, it's interesting that when Tammy is questioning um, Hastings about, you know, where is it that uh, he tells her it's through the fence, 15 to 20 feet inside. And then she asks him, well, what next? Or, you know, what happened next? And he says, well, I don't remember. Well, just in the previous episode, or at least I think it was nine, he was very detailed of what happened. They went there, they saw Major Briggs, the, the Sooties came in, and then he didn't remember. So this whole thing, this whole episode, especially with the scene upcoming with the Double R Diner, with the, the road rage, the, the crazy honking woman and the, the sick girl, and the, the, the Mitchum brothers, the Belushi cherry pie dream this whole episode is kind of self-contained in the sense that it really feels tied into uh like uh, not a dream but like a dream logic um it certainly it has like a very definitive beginning middle and end especially that heartbreaking scene with cooper and, and lady jackpots this almost feels like its own little kind of movie like that you could take it away from the whole and it would be satisfying even though there's a million questions you know left unanswered yeah, it's like this was kind of like an ambush. I thought perhaps was it an ambush for Cole? He didn't st- he didn't fall for it. No, I, it's a, it's a good question. It just seems like they were more intent. The woodsmen were more intent on like Hastings because um, they could have taken um, any one of them. You would think. But what's also very interesting uh, about this is that after this goes on, that um, Cole and Albert and Diane say that they saw the woodsman. Hastings saw him too, but Mackley and Tammy did not. So is it kind of like a gifted in the damn thing? We could only see these otherworldly spirits? Or Tammy was like thinking about other things. She's turned she's turned away from the whole scene anyway. She's not even she's not even focused, yeah. Well she's right now she's looking where Diane is looking. Yeah. I love that shot of, of Cole looking up. And do you see that Dude, center yeah. of the he portal? He just went through and saw the cities. That was awesome, yeah. It's like a black a dot that gets bigger and bigger, like this circle, and then he sees the sooties. And uh, it's interesting because it's a contrast to the portal in part 14 and near Jackrabbit's Palace. It's white. So this kind of does denote like a darker, more evil uh, uh, portal or dimension. So what would have happened if Cole had gone through the portal there? Uh, he would have wound up in the convenience store, so presumably, right? Probably. Head cut off? And Albert, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, it's a good question. I don't know. Weird guy it's, it's jumping. A, that scene is framed. So that the, the scene with Albert and Cole looking up at the portal when and Albert pulls him out and you see Tammy right behind her or right behind them. That scene is framed exactly like the scene later in this episode with Belushi and Nepper looking at each other with Cooper holding the cherry pie box. So there's a lot of like similarities. I mean, they're all disparate, but... The, the, this particular episode is, is very interesting and said there's only real three major like kind of set pieces. There's the Buckhorn set piece that we're watching now. There's the whole Twin Peaks, which is tied into uh, the Double R Diner and Becky's plight. And there's a, a little ancillary scene with Hawk and Truman. And then there's the whole Lucky Seven, Belushi and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and uh, Nepper with Cooper. So, but it's all, like I said, it's all, it seems tied together. Yeah, I just saw the great scene of Diane blowing away, using her smoke to blow away the woodsman. I still believe that now. On a plot, uh, 48th viewing, I still think it. Looks perfect. Very slowly. She's not just blowing out some smoke. She's doing some evil magic there to get him away. I think she's in cahoots. Well, not to, like, you know, burst your theory here, but... She is not a smoker in real life. And I remember reading about her in Wild at Heart, like Lynch had her smoking constantly. And even watching Wild at Heart, she's not a natural like smoker. I think when she's exhaling, it's just, there's just some kind of unconscious like feeling that she has. It's not natural. And it's very similar to her exhaling here, smoking here. So I think it's because she's not a true smoker. It's a method. Oh, there. well, we'll agree to disagree then. I think uh, he's pretty, feels pretty <laughs> Wait, I got a that. question before we leave the zone that Ruth Davenport's body that they saw at the end here. Um, do you think that body was there during this whole scene and they just saw it at the end or by Cole almost no, going into... No, in. No, I got blooped it, in with Cole. Yeah. We talked yeah, about like it, before, it yeah. came out. It came yes. out. Okay. Yeah, somehow. It came out when he came in. Like they, the little they touched somehow. It'd be cool to see her flying through the air. We well, then happen. where's Major Briggs' head then? I know, and you didn't hear it like go thud or anything. It just pop, boop. Well, I think it's in the uh, in you know in space. Oh, we just missed little head go poof. Ooh. Oh I God, he's that. dead. <laughs> I love Mac. Like Tammy's reaction. She's like, oh yeah, he's dead. 
Yeah, but Mackley in the car, he's like, oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> he's like, uh, and he's, he's passed on, unfortunately, the actor Brett Briscoe, I think. He was in Mall and Drive and Sling Blade, great actor. But yeah, all right, RMP. Well, here we are now. We're at the double R. This is a great scene. Yeah, this really an is. Intervention with Becky. Yeah, the talking... How old do you think she's supposed to be here? He seems like they're talking to her like she's 21 or something. I think she, I bet she's 23, my guess is that, because I think in the secret history that not long after the series, uh, the, the series ended, that they went to like Vegas or Reno or something and got married and she was already pregnant. It seems like a little spoiled, I suppose. She's, she's very immature. Like she's, uh, yeah. And Bobby was gone. I mean, Bobby was off. She probably had to raise herself. No I don't think so. I think Bobby has been the he's been the the bad cop, and uh, Shelley's been the good cop. We see that play out in this scene here, and uh, it had to have been a new role for Bobby. I mean, we don't think about Bobby uh, his arc off camera, but the events of his father dying right after the original series ended, I think, was the inciting incident for his. His development, his maturation, even though we saw little bits and pieces throughout the original series. And I think maybe just having a child like soon after caused him to kind of grow up. And uh, he kind of, uh, he, he took after his father. And I think Shelly, look, just look what she, she's still working at the double R. And she's fooling around with another guy, even though they're separated. I think her development or her maturation has been kind of stunted. I think Bobby is the, you know, he's the more mature one. And, uh, uh, <laughs> what? About mature. I'm like, if, I, if I was Bobby was my dad, I'd probably know how to play him like a violin emotionally. Cause he's like a softy. I think that Becky's been working both of them over pretty for years that they're just both, uh, they're not great parents. I don't think either of them are great parents. Well, yeah, dad. there's something for them to not know that, or at least suspect that Steven's been abusing her. Cause I think Bobby goes, is he hit you? Is he hitting and, you? Uh, yeah. And so, I, I, you know, no. I, there might be something, yeah, that they're maybe too involved with their own personal dramas. Do you think but she got her the, poor decision-making from Shelly's side of the family? Becky's? Mm, I, no, I, I, don't, it's, I don't know. She seems like smart. Bobby killed She's, a guy. <laughs> he, <laughs> you said that almost just exactly like the Laura Palmer inflection in Firewalk With Me. That's really good. I, I, I try. Um, That's what I do. But... Uh, it's also interesting this whole scene really kind of evokes the Major Briggs vision speech from our favorite episode, which is, I think, like this was the day it premiered, September 30th, uh, 1990. So it's, uh, what is that, 28 years ago. We were watching that second season premiere. So that vision speech. I was Bobby's, moved by that scene. Yeah, it was great. It was, I, it was incredible. But Bobby is in the position with blocking wise where his father was. And his ex-wife and his daughter. Oh, see, I thought they were on the side. other side. Of the, I thought they were on the other side of the double R. I thought they were on the left. No, side they were, but their placement in this in the actual booth, like where Bobby is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, here's Red. Gosh, <laughs> well, she's a really bad mom. That like, away. A great, a great moment, and then they're hugging it out, and then Red shows up, and just that's it. She's the worst mom ever. I wouldn't say the worst mom ever, but she made a poor decision here because I think I think what Shelley just said was. Um, you're going to stay over my place tonight and they're presumably going to talk. And then as soon as she sees Red, she's like, oh, kind of like, doesn't push her daughter away, but she just gets smiles and just gets up and goes. I, it's, uh, that is just very shocking. They, really. I bet Machen and Mick read that script was like, really? Really? That's I got to do that? Yeah. Well, it's better than her, like the other scenes, just her like and Norma just nodding and like watching, observing. That's what they've done a lot in other scenes as well. Where so. Norma's like kind she of the double R Buddha. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she really is. I mean, she's got like seven she's or eight the franchises. Ombudsman. <laughs> yeah, the double R. So she doesn't say much, but she's probably got a blog. Maybe got a newsletter. Yeah. Well, this whole thing, this this scene, really, we. This is the one I think family, the characters of Becky, Stephen, and Bobby that they could have expanded on with season three and given, you know, some more scenes because Bobby's tied into the sheriff station, and yeah, she he could be going after Red. Well, at least, I mean, he doesn't even, like, say anything. He's just... We're, we're he's just, a criminal, yeah. Well, maybe Bobby doesn't know he's a criminal. See, that's the thing. Like, see, she can't go after Bobby because Bobby got went straight. She only asked bad boys. Well, that's the obvious point that's is that she's still stuck on the whole bad guy thing. But you would think oh, after gunshots. Leo... Oh, yeah, the gunshots. This is a... Yeah. This whole scene, I would put this in as maybe the, in the top five scenes of the entire series. This is incredible. The way that Lynch creates this mood is just so unnerving and disturbing and, and bizarre and weird. And Bobby just has this perplexed expression throughout that really doesn't change. Yeah, it's a great scene. It's baffling. I still don't understand it now. I mean, it's like two different crazy things happening. The kid situation, then we get the bug girl coming. Uh, it looks like she's got a bug uh, uh, in her throat. Uh, it's very disturbing. And it's still unexplained. One of the unexplained unsolved mysteries in the show. 
Well, episode, one thing that I, I did notice, I don't, I don't think it's an exact uh, uh, copy of the dress that the girl in part eight was wearing in her room, but it's, it's very similar. So the sick girl in the car, when we finally do see her and she's vomiting up like green bile or whatever, her dress is very, it seems very dirty. And it looks very similar to the the dress that that little girl in part eight was wearing. And they're roughly around the same age. So maybe there is some kind of connection, um, not necessarily with the characters, but within, uh, in more kind of a symbolic term what Lynch is trying to do here. Because what we talked about earlier, if, if this evil, if this, this evil which started emanating, which we thought originally with Harry Truman and uh, Hawk in the Bookhouse Boys in the original series, there's always been an evil out there in those woods. We always thought it was emanating from the woods. What if it's really been emanating from the Palmer house, at least since the events of the original series. And it's only amplified over 25 years, and we don't really know what the hell is going on. And another thing to consider here is that when 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 Cole went into the zone, we go, oh, that's the convenience store, you know, because it looks like, you know, the convenience of the staircase. What if that's the Palmer house? What if that's the Palmer staircase? Is Man, it possible? There was three. No, I don't think so. It looks like three <laughs> woodsmen saw the, the atomic thing on the wall. Doesn't look anything like the Palmer House. Hey, you thought woodsmen were rummaging through her kitchen, going through her vodka bottles or whatever. Well, if that were ever proved true, that would have been a great scene. See, if that were proved true, and they were rummaging around in part 11 or 13 or whatever. Or I guess it's 13, right, or 12. But, uh, yeah, if that were proved true, then say, okay. But I see what you're saying. You're saying the convenience store staircase is, like, overlapped and overlaid over the Palmer House, like the TARDIS landing, and that's your uh, assumption. Your yes, right? yes. And it all ties into, go ahead and cue laugh in about 13 seconds, ties into this would look nice on your wall from Firewalk with me the portal that was in Laura Palmer's bedroom that we got no reference to at all in season three you're still but hanging on to that aren't you I am well just like still you and Diane blowing uh, blowing like cities away with their smoke that's true we all have our own interpretation and Albert and, uh, being the voice on the mysterious call in part two this lady looks like she can be related to Lewis Black she's just freaking out <laughs> It's an incredible performance. Yeah, it's great. I mean, this whole thing. It's so upsetting and confusing, and we have no idea. And then this, her rising out, the girl, she's like uh, Winona and Beetlejuice who just fell in the swamp. Yeah, you don't even see her. She's there the whole time, and then she just... Her arms are being held up like it's being possessed, like a sooty, an invisible sooty's pulling her up. She can't do that on her own. Someone's pulling her up. Is that is that chocolate milk? What color is that stuff coming out of her mouth? It's like kind of like a green? Li- like a pea yeah. green, like kind of a, pea uh, soup. Like pea soup, yeah, exactly. It's like pea Linda soup. Blair, like a Linda stuff? Blair thing, yeah. You could say it's like a sparkle thing. It's another thing we just saw red. She overdosed in sparkle. She could be like a sparkle thing. Uh, I like to think yeah. of maybe more of the supernatural or the otherworldly aspects or something emanating within the community that's affecting the community. Well, I'm still buying it because that she was doing stuff that physics and the body she can't. She something was holding her up and pulling her up. It was like she was possessed. Wasn't sparkle? Sparkle can't do that. Although you know, you if you're know. really jacked up on drugs, you can like lift a car off somebody. You know, you can do all kinds of crazy stuff. So maybe PCP yeah. angel okay. dust. Yes, you know. Yeah, sure. Why not? Angel that was some trading places. Yeah. Sparkle dust. <laughs> All right, here we go. The living map, Tom. Okay. You know, he doesn't say living map. I'd love map. to live in this map for a while. He oh, actually says... So Lewis said it's a living thing. Yes, it's a living thing. Isn't that an ELO song, too? Uh, You would know that. Electric Light Orchestra? You yeah. know that more than I would. Anyway, this is very... Because this all... We know that they're going to go to this location, the 253 east of Jackrabbit's Palace, and we were all expecting some big to do based on this scene because what hawk is telling frank is about this the black smoke and this modern day electricity and uh death and then the log lady chimes in she calls in in a second saying there's fire where you're going but none of that happens none of it so what is the intent is it just to color this particular scene yeah they you know we need an owl cave type thing in this one how can we put that in here we love everyone loved that so they throw this in here and they're like well we'll figure out what to do with it and it just went nowhere but they, they it's a frost creation it's just they make they put a significance on the blue pine mountain that's where it's a little bit too literal you know what i'm saying like for lynch he's like what the hell <laughs> garbage <laughs> comic book what is this get rid of it <laughs> wait he's the one who came up with freddie and the green glove i mean that's comic frost. book yeah uh that's true okay that's true but he, well, I think, he, I, think it, I think it had all kinds of ripe opportunities. We thought there was going to be Al Cave on there. We thought some shit was going to go down on Blue Pine Mountain Ridge and you know follow the map, and nothing happened of that. No, it was just NATO there and a portal to the White Lodge, a very good place. And there wasn't black smoke. 
or anything like that. Now, it, it, could it somehow be tied to Mr. C? Uh, you know, because the woodsmen do show up in part 17. Mr. W- uh, Mr. C shows up and that's where he goes. He goes to that particular location. Maybe it's like, well, you need to get there first. I, I don't know, but it really yeah. is was kind of disappointing that we didn't get to see that. But it's OK. It's just I, I'm still having a hard time reconciling the significance of this living map because he's talking about this corn, this black corn, you know, which, you know, tied to fertility, but, but like it's dark, it's decaying. So it's more like death. And that could be tied to like Garmin Bozia. Well, probably what it's doing, it's like setting the idea that like, there's like a whole mythology behind the black lodge. And this has been going on for a long time. And the mystery in the woods, it's all been tracked down over the years by certain people. They've created this map. They're trying to like the living organism of evil out in the woods. They're trying to track with this living organism map, but we don't see much of it, but we see a glimpse. And so we see, okay, that's going on. You know, there's a, this is kind of like native American, perhaps, uh, you know, influence. They're the ones maybe that know all about this from chief Joseph days. They're tracking it. Well, and then, well maybe that, there's like a, like a gas station map, <laughs> like for tourists, <laughs> like a Valero. Like we could have, did we look for one of them? We were up there. Did we find one at the map? Was there any gas I station think maps? We did, yeah. Oh, There's I want to bring something up with the log lady. She says you found something, and Hawk says yes, just like you said. And then she goes, "Well, what did you find?" And he says, "I can't tell you." Now, hey, her asshole. Come on. Her, her message. Yeah, her message was about um, presumably the diary pages. So can he not tell her that? But I think that she's talking about where, like, you found something, like the message that Major Briggs. Um, but maybe that was the whole thing. No, because the diary pages didn't lead to Major Briggs. Bobby, Bobby's story about Major Briggs, like, right after the events of the original series, led them to go inquire to Betty. So what's going on with Hawk? Why can't he talk about the Jackrabbit's Palace thing? Well, maybe because Margaret hasn't been deputized. If he hands the phone over to the log, the log he can tell the log. The log has been deputized. The log can get the confidential information. Should he have just said, like, put the log on the phone? Put the, and yeah, then, put the log on the phone, yeah. Put the log and on I'll the tell phone. the log. <laughs> and then the log I'd like will... to see the log with a headset, little phone headset. Be funny. <laughs> little deputy badge, yeah. <laughs> and here's this little aside of Jesse with his car. Remember that oh, scene? Yeah. <laughs> so random. I mean, and that's how the scene ends, I think. Oh, we, we, we forgot to talk about the big part of this scene. It's like Frank goes, that symbol on top of Blue Pine, Ma- Blue Pine Mountain. We saw that on Major Briggs' message. What does that mean exactly? And Hawk's like, uh, well, you don't want to know what that is. So that's the Judas. Once again, withholding information. All right, here we are with the scene. Post-traumatic stress disorder for everybody. Donuts around. Wish I had uh, some donuts right now. This is the... Uh, Famous dirty bearded men scene, Tom. <laughs> Didn't you have some theory about Diane and their placement around this whole circle here? Diane on the stool. Didn't you have something? Well, like it was Black just lodge. Yeah, it was just uh, uh, an interesting thought because of the convenience store scene from Fire Walk with Me. Like Philip Jeffries was telling Cooper and Albert and Cole about his uh, meeting all the spirits at the convenience store, and if you watch that scene where everyone's placed in the middle of the room, there's someone missing. There's a stool. No one is sitting in that stool. So why did Lynch include a stool? So maybe the inference is that that was Judy's place. But since maybe Judy led Jeffries to the convenience store, then this is from his point of view that he's not actually seeing her within that meeting because he's with her. So I always thought that was, and then because Diane, we've kind of speculated that Diane, or at least the NATO as Diane, that might have been like a Judy guys, um, because when she shows up in part 17, it's when Cooper thwarted Mr. C and NATO suddenly changes into, you know, the girl Friday and helps Cooper out. But maybe if NATO was not who she is, you know, seems to be went ahead and changed her identity to Diana familiar to kind of placate Cooper and to take him on his eventual journey to part 18 and kind of fuck him up in Odessa land. So that's the only reason why I went that route. I don't think it's like a strong, strong theory. But if you look at her in that uh, Buckhorn Sheriff Station or police station, she's on a stool. And she is sitting above everyone else, like in kind of a prominent position. So, um, I mean, it could be in reference to the Tulpa Diane being not who she seems to be. But uh, um, they are talking about their experiences in the zone. They saw the convenience store. So there might be, uh, might be a little connection there. 
Uh, yeah, maybe there'd be a profound meaning if you overlapped like the convenience store scene for Firewalk with Me over this scene here. Maybe there would be some sort of a connection. Yeah, Dirty bearded men, Tom. <laughs> again and again and again. Yeah, what's up with like, all the the donuts in Twin Peaks? Is it like a symbol of like American excess? Because they always seem to have more than they can actually eat. Like you know, I see there's like 500 laid on the table, and everyone seems to be like picking at them like birds, except for like you know, Agent Cooper and like Harry and stuff will stuff two in at a time, but. Uh, See if, if you could just follow them around, like all the the, the stale donuts, would probably feed some feed some needy people. What do you think? Now is Cole the only one eating a donut in this scene? As far as I know, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't see, know. That's they, what I'm saying. People hardly ever eat the donuts. They they wheel the donuts out, and it's almost like uh, they they wheel out so many that everyone gets like turned off. Like ugh. <laughs> like only like Chad. Only the cops essentially are the only ones that really stuff in their face. Right, and it's the classic scene from the pilot where Lucy has laid FBI out the morning. Yeah, the do- like, are they really going to eat all those donuts between like the four or five of them? Probably not. So there's Did you some- just like lay a tarp over it and that they they bring them out the next day, wheel them out, day old donuts. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But it is interesting because of the whole like nostalgia bit. Is um, th- this show? I think a lot of people had issues with it not feeling like the original series. It was, as we said, more along the lines of A Firewalk With Me, which people had issues with when that was originally released because it didn't really feel like season one or season two. But um, even though that the show, I don't think Lynch and Frost deliberately were going anti-nostalgia, but they, they certainly didn't want to revisit the past, their, their past glory. But it seems like the only real fan service that they gave was the, the coffee, the pie, and the donuts. Like, all related kind of like food. And not necessarily with uh, characters or certain lines. and what Plot, story. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Dirty bearded donuts, Tom. That's what we got. And then it's interesting, the scene as well, is that um, the, the whole thing with this scene is... Cole wants to know about the coordinates that Albert took the photo from Ruth's arm and Diane is mysteriously leaning over and she's, you know, she's doing her pneumatic thing. You can see her going like coordinates. Yeah. But Cole asks Albert, like, well, where does it lead? And he's, he's about to tell him, but he's not saying a town. He says, well, it's a place in the North. And I think he was going to say in the Northwest, but before he had mentioned Twin Peaks to Cole, I think outside the morgue when uh, they were all looking over uh, Briggs's body, but do you think that he didn't mention Twin Peaks specifically because he's already suspecting Diane and doesn't want to give her give her any additional information? Yeah, either that or the retcon has already occurred or something like that. Or we discussed that. Oh, that's right. Podcast, I think that I think. was part yeah. of... Yeah. He doesn't know yeah. at the time, but the, maybe the retcon has not occurred. Or Yeah, it has already occurred and he never went to Twin Peaks. Potentially, because he would know. He wouldn't say a town in the Pacific Northwest. He'd go fucking Twin Peaks. Exactly. You know? He didn't say it. Yeah, that's exact. That's true. And uh, I never really Triple thought about that. The fuzzy memories is that that even it's only been like a couple of episodes since he said Twin Peaks. That I like your idea that though. He, he wanted to keep the information from Diane though, because he's pretty. She's being cagey around Diane. You know, it's like, like Occam's Razor. That's a logical explanation, other than the retcon thing. You know. Well, he also seems to be the one that is at least assigned, maybe Cole assigned him to track Diane. Cole seems more interested in wooing French women and uh, uh, sipping fine Bordeaux. And Albert's doing the dirty work and tracking her cell phone messages. And Tammy's still getting the images from the cards in, uh, in New York City. And they're feeding this information to Cole. And it's interesting in the sense that Cole seems to know everything not everything, but a lot of what's going on. And even the information that he's receiving, I think that maybe he's already kind of privy to, but he kind of plays dumb. Yeah, what do you think they uh, deem the cause of death for Lillard? <laughs> I don't know. That, how'd they, how'd they been, report that? Would have been a great scene with, uh, what's her name, Constance? It would have loved, she could have done like yeah. a couple more bits, right? Like her stand-up yeah, more routine? Bits. Yeah. yeah, he's dead. So, he lost his head. Yeah. <laughs> Just like that other guy, yeah. Um, this that must have been thing. one big zit. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, that's an improv one. Yeah, there you go. Dude, it sounds kind of weird, but at the Dirty Bearded Donuts shop, don't you think a Garma Vazia donut would actually maybe be kind of good? Like cream <laughs> corn and donut? What do you think? That's, well, that would definitely be on the menu at some point. Um, um, in Just not sprinkling of motor oil. I'd, I'd say 86 that. I wouldn't want the motor oil. <laughs> yeah. Boost. Boost. So what was Lynch's reference about cat, cat on a hot tin roof when his hand was shaking? Because I haven't seen cat on a hot tin roof. 
Uh, well, no, the, I think it has nothing to do with the actual play, but the idea, right? It's hot out there in the south, and you put a cat on a hot tin roof. It's hot as shit, and so it's hopping around. Ah, okay. So you can see you're nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof, son. Ah, okay. And so he looked at his hand. Cat on a hot tin roof! Because it was shaking like a mother scratcher. So we have a cat on a hot tin roof reference. We had the King and I reference from Red, right, in part six. Mm-hmm. Um, any other... References to any other films or plays or novels Picnic. that you can think of? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was, was Gordon my... Cole's first sexual experience. He's <laughs> yeah. watching Picnic. All right, now here we go. So now here's the fi- the third real, like, uh, part three of the segment, triptych. really, the triptych yeah. of, of this particular episode is the Vegas. And uh, it was interesting, the, the red balloons, which we've never really solved, there's red balloons everywhere, but. That shot of the statue with the gun, the red balloon was right below the gun, like framed right below the gun. Like, I mean, it had to be Dude, like... after deliberate. all this analysis, don't we, can't we just say the red balloons? What do they mean? Nothing. No one's ever no. had a, a... What do they mean? I think it's tied in the whole thing with the fantasy element. Well, not the, the dreamlike element, I should say, of what Vegas is. Now, I don't know what the significance of the red balloon tied to, like, a dream or a dreamscape, but... Well, if it was like Dougie's world, it could be like he likes big candy-like balloons, red delicious balloons everywhere because he's in Dougie land, right? I, I, I don't know. I think it's got to it's be something from Lynch and Frost. Maybe it's some something in a text or something from their past or something that is unique Maybe there's to a red them. Dugpa, like red Dugpa wooden red hats, that that's the metaphoric symbol of the red hats. But they're everywhere. They're in... Like Janie E's, they're, they're home. They're in the 119 woman's home. They're here at Lucky 7. And you have like even Jacoby in Twin Peaks is talking about a red balloon at some point. I mean, there's literally a dozen references to, I mean, there's a red balloon in Sizemore's office, like a painting. I mean, they're everywhere. So I just. Well, what do you think it means? This section of the story, the Vegas section, is not really, really, really happening. And it really is reinforced again in this episode with the Belushi dream. I mean, Nepper's scar on his face or his cut, like within a span of hours, completely heals. I mean, that is not real. That is magic. It's magic. Uh, And what I was talking about earlier about the key of, you know, Cooper, like, you know, knowing all these things, like he comes in part 17 and he knows about Freddie and he asks Truman for the key and he magically winds up with Cole and Diane in the furnace room, and he knows that key opens that door. And who does he see? He sees Philip Gerard, the guy that he's been see- been seeing in, in, in the Black Lodge, the Red Room, the entire time, Like who's been helping him along in Vegas in this dream factory. So it just reinforces it. I'm not one of those guys that everything is a dream, but I really believe it's kind of like a waking dream or a lucid dream that Cooper is having. And since no other characters in Buckhorn or any other location other than Chantal and Hutch actually go to Vegas to do something. It's really isolated compared to all the other locations. I would like to see like a cameo from the one-armed man like working the drive through at the Derwiner Schnitzel when like, Dougie comes through. Yo, wieners, sir. <laughs> be hilarious. So you know it's a dream? You never really got that. Hey, but isn't it curious that in this season, like all of the lodge scenes with Cooper, the only time that he utters a word is with Laura Palmer. He doesn't talk to Philip Gerard. He doesn't talk to the evolution of the arm. He doesn't talk to Leland Palmer. He doesn't say anything. to. And they're asking him questions. Do you remember your doppelganger? Is it future? Is it past? Is it the story of the little girl who lived down the lane? And he's just looking. He's just, So it's almost like he's almost dreaming within the lodge, but we know that he's stuck there in this kind of purgatory. But he's not... You would think that he would have a million questions. Or maybe he you know, asked him already. You know, and, and loop-de-loops that we didn't see. But it is curious that he's only talking to Laura Palmer. All right, now we're watching the Mitchell brothers eat breakfast. Uh, very bad manners, I think. They're smacking their teeth. They're sucking their teeth. It's horrible. You know, I remember reading before the series came out, Belushi talked about um, a scene where he was eating. And I think it was breakfast. And Lynch's direction was like, this is the best breakfast you've ever had. I want you to savor every bite i want you to be so enthusiastic and here it is the breakfast scene this is the only one we got he doesn't take one bite though and he doesn't take a bite yeah. he actually goes like i can't eat this yeah. so is there another scene is was that i cut? think belushi just said fuck you on the old advice buddy i'm gonna do it my way maybe belushi wasn't smoking his own weed he has his own strain of weed out here in california <laughs> and so maybe he wasn't high enough to eat the cereal you yeah. sent me that that's yeah, hilarious everybody. that image you want to get weed hilarious. out in california belushi will sell to you he's got his own strains <laughs> it's got a great ad with this like, well, hey, he's got a picture like we. It's, it's raining like weed in his head. Yeah, it's great. 
Episode well, two. this is the moment, too, where he sits down, and the reason why he's agitated is because of his dream. Yeah, dream. And if you notice, the, one of the parts of the dream not here is that um, his brother, Nepper's cut is healed in his dream, but you see here at the breakfast scene, his cut is, he doesn't have the bandaid on it. We can see the cut. So just in a matter of hours, that cut is going to be healed. It's magic. That's what I'm saying. Well, the only reason why that could happen, Thomas, because we're, we're in its own dream world. It was so, so Belushi was having a dream within a dream, right? Well, okay. Was he having a dream within a dream? Because this goes into something deeper. Since Cooper, we've seen him being aided and guided at times by the one-armed man, basically to help him in all these various scenarios, namely to not be killed, but also with the case files and any number of things. Is it possible that the one-armed man infiltrated uh, the subconscious of Belushi and planted this cherry pie dream in Belushi. Why can't he just have the dream? Why can't they disconnect like Laura and Cooper connected in the original, like, you know, Firewalk with me and Twin Peaks? Why couldn't they, Belushi and Dougie, have connected while they both were sleeping in Rancho Rosa or wherever the fuck they are, in Vegas, whatever, whatever neighborhood they are? And uh, that way, why does the one armed man have to be involved? Well, but don't you think that he's pulling the strings in this, if we believe this to be like a Vegas dreamscape, that it's not just unique to Cooper. Like these people that he's interacting with, Candy, Mandy, Sandy, all these people, Janie, E, everyone, I think they're real people. I don't think that they're just uh, dream images, dream characters from Cooper. I think that like the Bill Hastings from... Um, the the first two episodes, like his experience with his own, how he equated it to being like a dream, and then when all the shit went down, he found himself back at his home. He didn't know how he got to and fro, and so he just equated it to a dream. So why can't the same thing be happening in Vegas, all these interactions with Cooper, is that once Cooper leaves in Part 17, leaves Vegas and all these characters behind, that there's this kind of just faded memory of Cooper in all of these people, the, the people that he had interactions with, like a dream. We've talked about this a million times about the worlds colliding in terms of the, being a Dougie dream world, a unified lodge theory, and all of Vegas with Dougie was 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 not real. And then when he woke up and like he came into in seventeen at the sheriff station, then the, all the worlds collided: the the Mister C world, the Dougie world, the Coop world, all the world. And so I don't know what happened. I would think that maybe like uh, the Mitchum brothers and Candyman and Cindy just like disappeared out of that that sheriff station and were never never seen again. Like they didn't exist. I think Cooper has infiltrated their world, but I think like at some point it'd be kind of a Wizard of Oz. It's like it's kind of like a dream within a dream. As I think these people actually exist. That Cooper is the outlier. He's like uh, the lucid dreamer that somehow, unaware that he's lucid dreaming, is infiltrated their dream. And maybe it's because it's being manufactured by Philip Gerard and or the Black Lodge or something else. But once he's gone. Like you said in, in part 17, I think at least the people that aren't from that area, like the Mitchell brothers and Candy, Manny and Sandy, that they might like Hastings wind up back at their pad in Vegas and go like, you know, I had a dream or something. It seemed weird. And then they could go like, well, I had a dream too. And they could talk about it. But that's how I think. I don't think it's like a dream in the sense that these people don't exist. I think it's more complicated than that. Well, if you think everything in Vegas has some source material and that there's something exists about them, that like, is, does that mean that, that there's like a, a big weed somewhere in Rancho Rosa or like that looks like the evolution of the arm? <laughs> they came out and helped him out? Because how did that happen? <laughs> out of control weed growing no. outside of Dougie's office? Okay, so Battling Bud and Cooper are walking out right now, and Battling Bud is confident enough in this zombie-like Cooper to give him a check for $30 million. He indulges him to get this cherry pie and is allowing Cooper to go and have a meeting with alleged gangsters who currently think that they're not getting $30 million because they're... Uh, their arson claim has gone, is, was denied. So Battle and Butt thinks it's okay to send Cooper on this journey. And right before he uh, sends Cooper away, he like grabs him by the shoulder, and I think he gives him a little punch to the face. And then Cooper starts massaging his face, kind of like Mr. C. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, he massaged his own face, yeah. yeah he had to pump I... himself up, but I thought it was like kind of foreboding. We thought he was going to be going into his death here, right, potentially. Well, yeah, but doesn't like doesn't Bill Bushnell attention. say like right before that or when he's massaging his face like knock him dead, knock him dead? Yeah, he said it. Yeah, yeah. So there is some kind of connection. So I really do believe that 
um, Mr. C and Cooper, they have this kind of like Corsican Brothers, this old Cheech and Chong movie where they play twins, and they no matter how far away they are, like if something happens to one of them, like the, the other person can feel it or sense it. So I really do believe that even though Cooper has been in the lodge all this time, that he has some idea of what's been going on with Mr. C while he's been out there because he really is... That, that's who he is. It's just his shadow self. And I think the same thing applies for Mr. C. That's why he knows Cooper is still alive. And he knows that he, he can feel it. Yeah, just like Luke and Leia in Star Wars, Tom. Okay. <laughs> Should we have like a, a count, like a ringer, like a, a bell? Ding! I think that's reference number four yeah, of okay. Star Wars. All right, All right well, we've heard the Viva, Viva Las Vegas uh, moment, the interlude that's uh, a lot of people love. I'm, I'm not one of them. But uh, what do you think of the song? Uh, well, I was going to say in our intro, at Big least, fan? you know, at the top that uh, this episode. Which, no offense uh, to Sean Colvin. No, no performer. offense to Sean Colvin, but yeah. this is an incredible episode. Uh, it really focuses on just like the, it's like a triptych. It, you know, we Twin Peaks and then Buckhorn and then Vegas. Not a lot of intercutting or cross-cutting, and it really feels like this whole. But even though there's so many high notes in this particular episode, it has my least favorite moment in all of the Return, and it is the exactly least, this what is this it? meant. The least. Yes. Yes, it just it does feels... seem like it should be like in like like Las Vegas, like one of those movies, like one of those Sunshine Boys, like going to Vegas, <laughs> yes. and whip it up one last time. It be great in a montage in that movie. Yeah, not Twin Peaks, not a David Lynch project. It just seems yeah. like an outlier. It's like why? It's almost like hearing that. I was thinking like, okay, I bet if we the... asked David, he'd be like, I love this fucking song, you assholes. <laughs> Don't be dicks. That's probably it's what great. It is. I just yeah. it just seemed like. Okay, it's one thing to use the song, but to lo- to use it while the the limo is driving down the Vegas. Yeah, it was strip. like a minute long. Yeah, it was a long, long usage. Long and there's use. no irony to it. It's like they're in. I Vegas. think it was actually more than Julie Cruz in Seventeen. I think Julie Cruz's song was only was only on less time than, than Sean Colvin's song. That's true. Yeah, which is kind of sad. But she really was the only Roadhouse <laughs> performance that got kind of like shorted, basically. And it really is the the classic song from the original series. That's true. Yeah, like, well, here we are. Here's the big, the big famous scene with the uh, in the duel in the desert with the donut, or not the donuts, duel in the desert with the the cherry pie in a box instead of a box that Gwyneth uh, Paltrow's head in a box with a delicious cherry pie. <laughs> well, do you think That's that that as a crane shot or a drone shot when the limo's coming down to go meet Mitchum? Uh, drone. I think all the cranes have been retired. Yeah, with the 70s, they're all... So David Lynch doesn't like, have yeah. like a Johnny LaRue uh, crane? Yeah, they've been using like carnivals around the city, like around the country, like really bad <laughs> safety. Yeah. So no, they're using drones. This is 2018 probably, I would think. I guess. I mean, what do I know? But I think so. But look at the symmetry there, Tom. Look, this is the, you got Coop right there in the middle. It's like some John Ford shit. It is, really. It's beautifully shot. It's like at the magic hour. It's nearing dusk. And uh, there's the symmetry yeah, like, again with the framing with, uh, uh, with uh, Belushi and Nepper and uh, Cooper in the background, just like in the zone. So it's like re- repetition. Lynch, like, it's like almost watching or listening to Philip Glass, like the repetition of his, his notes, his music, and there's all these little subtle changes that you can't even discern. But Lynch is, I think Lynch likes that. I think with his, uh, with his visual storytelling is these repetitions but they're not exactly the same the notes are just a little bit off with you got black on one side of the car right on the white on the other yeah and you've got nepper in belushi or at least belushi telling nepper about his dream again and he's remembering more pieces to the dream and the big thing is his cut in his dream disappeared and that's the one thing. And, and even Nepper goes, oh, my God. So like you were saying earlier, like magic, like this, is this really happening? This can't – this really just reinforces the whole unified lodge theory that, uh, that what's going on here is not just unique to Cooper. Or maybe it is unique to Cooper, but like we were saying earlier, is that these characters, the Belushi's, the Neppers, the Mandy Candy, they're all kind of pawns in this – uh, kind of lodge dreamscape with Dale Cooper at the center with the one-armed man, Philip Gerard, or the evolution of the arm, manipulating and putting the string. Well, either all that, or maybe Candy was putting on some, like, vitamin E cream on his, like, cut overnight, and it healed naturally. <laughs> Do you think the lodge arbitrarily, well, kill, they could like people, whether they're killers or good guys? Like, it doesn't matter if they're just good, like, people underneath, like the Mitchell brothers, apparently. There's good, good guys underneath all the killing, right? I think Cooper's presence in Vegas... Uh, brought out 
their hearts of gold. Now, they might have always <laughs> had hearts of gold. They were orphans, but they were going to kill him. They were going to kill Ike the Spike. But Cooper is, oh, this reminds me. This might be a good time to to bring this up, the whole thing. You're going to go ahead and poo-poo this because we already talked about this the other night. But the whole thing in part three, the old, like, NATO scene going out in space in the black box and then the the other black box in uh, in Argentina looks very much like the monolith in 2001. Am I wrong? Yeah, I see it. <laughs> So the very end of 2001, a great Kubrick movie, which I think Lynch is a huge fan, or at least a fan of Kubrick's Lolita, the end of that movie is the monolith, or it's the star child coming to Earth. What if, like, you know, Cooper, as the Dougie in this series, is kind of like the star child. He's coming from the Black Lodge, from his journey. He's coming to Vegas with this this inner light, this alien intelligence, something, what have you, and he is changing the lives of all the people that he comes into contact with. So Dale Cooper... Is that what the Starchild did? No, I think the Starchild was really like... I think it was Dave Bowman being reborn, um, uh, you know, because it was a cycle of life, what we were seeing in that anteroom. He's now enlightened world, he's more enlightened now. Or something, and then that that, that monolith, which connoted intelligence, that yeah, now was... The Starchild was probably really smart, and he is not smart, Dougie. But he has that inner star child, is what I'm saying. So, I think you're um, right, though. I think the inner star child, I think you're right about that. Dude, here we have the final scene, one of my favorite scenes in the whole series. It makes me want to have some champagne and some uh, cherry pie. I never had that combination before. It looks delicious. This was pitch perfect. I mean, everyone did a great job. This is an incredible scene on so many different levels. We've got the cherry pie. You can see Cooper not liking the champagne. You you know he prefers his coffee right now, but they don't know that. And then The point about this is, like, I think he's hearing the haunting and heartbreaking or whatever it's called. I think he's having, like, an emotional uh, connection. Maybe, like, uh, Janie doesn't play music a lot in the car, and so he probably hasn't heard some good music in a while, and his heartstrings are getting, like, tickled a little bit, coming, coming alive. Well, I just think it's, like, it's a culmination. It's, like, this part of he's his Vegas up. story... Of, he almost died. He was going to be killed, but he was helped by the one-armed man, Philip Gerard, got the cherry pie, and now he's got these new allies who are going to help him continue to stay alive. And Mrs. Jackpots, maybe he got a sense of Mrs. Jackpots coming, someone that he changed her life. This is another... And also, this is one of the few scenes in the entire season where like, it's just like a positive scene. You know what I'm saying? Where they're just like, someone's like, they're all enjoying some delicious pie and champagne and she's coming here and thanking him and they're all happy to be together and everything's great. That What other what other scene is that is happening in any of this, the rest of the season? So that's the other part of this. Even though that's these guys true. are gangsters, uh, it's nice to just kind of see everybody happy for a minute and have some pie. Do you think the piano player looks a little like John Hurd, the actor? He does look like John Hurd. Maybe he could be John Hurd. Actually, I think he was like a, a 70s uh, or Italian uh, movie guy. He was, he, uh, he's not John Hurd, Tom. No, I know. He just looks like John Hurt. He does kind of, though. But John Hurt died, right? Yeah, he's un- yeah, he passed away. Yeah, would you think, actually, that Nepper and Belushi are technically, like, physical brothers? Or do you think that they were, they met at the orphanage, and they kind of created this Mitchum Brothers persona, these identities, become heavies in the, the Vegas yeah. world? Yeah, because they probably both like Bob Mitchum or something like that, and so they became, like, they changed their name to Mitchums. They didn't. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah, I think so. Maybe Sandy, Mandy, and Candy are orphans as well. Well, yeah, because Candy is so she shows up and she's she's the only one who talks of the three. And <laughs> I love his face when he's like she's just zoned out. Do you think she's kind of doing that on purpose? I think she's doing it on purpose, isn't she? Just to kind of fuck with him. I, I don't think so. No, I think she's more of a little bit of an evolved version of what Cooper's going through right now. And there was a lot of speculation that um, that she is not who she claims to be, or she might oh, be going through something on. similar. Well, I mean. Can she really be that? Well, Tom, she's not real, I think. She's a dream fig, but she's not real, damn it, Tom. There's no Candy, Mandy, and Sandy walking around Vegas. Come on, look at them. You think they could survive? Can you imagine just the, the amount of chafing that would be going on with all that, the outfits and the heat and just the, all the ha- pantyhose? It was just, ugh. They're too, ugh. I don't think it's real, Tom. Well, she actually says when uh, Belushi asks her, where have you been? That after a while, she tells them that the traffic, like in Wild at Heart, like, have you been noticing the buildup in traffic? Right. That there was traffic on yeah. the strip. There's so many cars on the road. And it made me think just in this early, you know, earlier in this episode, outside of the Double R Diner, that little traffic jam. It's not the Vegas Strip, but a lineup of cars that, that maybe there is some, like, interconnectedness going on. Um, <laughs> There's traffic not, everywhere. Within the construct of this, of this world.
Uh, you got any final thoughts uh, this episode? Any tidbits? Yeah, it's an interesting thing that we haven't really talked about is the collaboration between Lynch and Battlemente. So strong, and it's been since you know Blue Velvet in 86, probably 85 when they were still shooting, but um, that they weren't in they weren't together physically collaborating in season three. It was like with Lynch and Frost, like Skyping most of the time with technology. Lynch was like talking to Angelo going like, well, I want this feeling. Give me this song. And specifically this story of the heartbreaking, I think Lynch was directing him like the Laura Palmer's theme, like what he wanted in Angelo from Jersey. I think that's where he's based. Came up with that ditty, like why they were talking. And uh, my, my, my question to you is, do you think, even though that's a beautiful song, but with the collaboration with Frost not being in close proximity and with Angelo, that there is maybe somewhat of a disconnect where the, the collaboration is, is hurt a little bit because you don't have that physicality? Or is that just the world we live in? Uh, no, just the world we live in, I think. <laughs> Although maybe if he wanted to get like an emotion out of Angelo, he could like send some like hitman to come like, you know, mess him up. Like, do, like, you know, or be really nice to him that day. Give him a free donut or, free, you know, or run into him with a car, yell at him. And then he comes into the stadium and there he is. It's kind of good. Man, okay. Well, also, too, something that I neglected to mention earlier is that uh, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree uh, related to Shelly and Becky is that the whole thing with that frenetic pace in the beginning with Becky freaking out when she realizes Stephen is two-timing her and uh, she goes after him and she pulls out that gun and shoots the door. Uh, well, it's something similar with an abusive partner is that Shelly was doing the same thing in the original series. She pulled the gun out of Leo and actually shot him. So that was one of the few things that actually is connecting. Again. I bet she shot Bobby too. We need to get to see it. <laughs> Wait, Shelly shot Bobby? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely in the last 25 years. At one point, she shot him too. Shelly does not seem unstable. You know, she's just eh, the classic. I think, like, dude, I think, she, I think she was unstable. I think that caused her to be, get a substance abuse problem. And now she's clean again. But I think when she, she, had, a, she had a dark period, I think. Uh, <laughs> she made some bad decisions. <laughs> Personally, <laughs> and then also outside of that that door, Steve. I think that's I think that's supposed to be Gersten's uh, Gersten Hayward's yeah. apartment. It's the wrong door, though, right? Did he get the right door? Was it? Like no, I think she got door. the right door, but her neighbor came out and said, "Well, they're not there. They just Julie. left." You know who? That's like the yeah, the Julie. cruise director from the Love Boat. Yeah, Julie the Love Boat. Yeah, yeah. She didn't get a good pension, obviously. I think the Pacific Princess Cruise is probably closed down. She doesn't get the four hundred and one k. Now she's stuck in a really lousy apartment in Twin Peaks. Yeah. <laughs> This being an anniversary of sorts, it's September 30th, uh, the anniversary of the second season premiere, the first Twin Peaks episode that Murphy and I watched live. It was on Sunday night on uh, ABC, and it was two hours, and we had to go to school the next day. We weren't together. I was with my girlfriend. I think, Murphy, you were at home watching it. But it is our favorite episode of the original series, a classic. We love it. So many bits. We named our podcast after it. So Murphy is going to take us out by singing Mersey Dotes. On that note, uh, thanks to everybody. We'll see you next time. Twin Peaks was nominated for eight Emmys and got completely shut out again. Not just Lynch, everything. Costumes, sound design, editing, gaffing, key lighting, sweeping, zero for eight. Yeah, all the Emmy voter, like the samples, DVDs that went out for the series just got unwatched. They're, they're, they're coasters. It's over people's heads.
If they saw what? like even part eight, I mean, what the fuck would they even think about that? They, they, people probably said, "Oh, heard part eight's good." They'll maybe watch that, and then uh, that's that's it. They have no idea. Yeah, but at least someone who might not have the capacity to get into like an abstract story can watch part eight and go, well, that's some great cinematography. Well, that's some great sound design and can look at other, other categories and go like, well, I would give a vote for that show. I don't like the story. I don't know the acting, but it looks good. They got nothing. They got nothing. I was expecting these that, are so creative people in the industry. They can't look at part eight and go like, yes, the sound design. Yes. The cinematography, the most mm, beautiful thing I've ever weird. seen. A little too weird. Too, <laughs> too artsy fartsy. Ha <laughs> ha.